Hey, open up your new books to the very first lesson. And it is lesson number 79. We'll be looking at moving mountains in the valley. And in your Bibles, if you would go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 17. I am actually going to read all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which pertain to this event of the Lord's delivery of a boy demoniac because each one of the accounts gives to us new different information some of the same information but also some additional and I didn't want to skimp out on any of it so we're going to be reading from Matthew Mark and Luke this morning and we're going to begin by looking at Matthew so if you're opened up please to Matthew 17 starting at verse 14 And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, now this is, of course, right on the heels of the Lord's transfiguration experience. He and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, came down from the mountain. And what met them? This hellish situation. A multitude and a certain man came to him, kneeling down to him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples and very sad words, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind, and there he is speaking of the demon that was in the boy, howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry, meaning grieved, exceeding grieved. Okay, now if you will move over to Mark. And let's look at what Mark has to tell us, because he tells us some definitely some additional information here. And we will look at Mark 9, starting at verse 14, and read through verse 32. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes, first time we hear about scribes down there at the foot of the mountain, the scribes were questioning with them, with the disciples. And straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, when they beheld who? Jesus. When they beheld Jesus, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him or greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, meaning he couldn't speak. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and what? They could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. 
And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, he is the demon, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long, he, meaning Jesus, asked his father, the boy's father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he, the father, said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Who do you think the us was? He and the boy and probably the mother as well. This was a young child. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit. Now here we learn that the spirit made the boy not only dumb, he couldn't talk, but he was also deaf. He said, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. The spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and as he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Understood not, after he just predicted again that he would be killed and raised the third day. Verse 32 says, But they understood not that saying, were afraid to ask him. Why do you think they were afraid to ask him? They really didn't want to hear. (laughs) All right, now one more passage, and then we'll get into our lesson. Let's look at Luke 9. And uh, we'll look at verses 37 to 45, Luke 9. It says, And it came to pass that on the next day, the day after the transfiguration, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for he is mine only child. This is, we learned something new about this boy. He was the only child of his parents. It's interesting because... Luke tells us this, and Luke was the only one who told us in Luke chapter 7 about the widow's son, the widow from Nain, her son being her only son. That was in Luke 7. Then in Luke 8, Luke was the only one who told us that Jairus' daughter was their only daughter. And now Luke is the only one who tells us that this demoniac boy was the, the parent's only child. And for whatever that's worth, I think it is interesting. And Jesus Christ, of course, the one who heals them, is the only son of of his father. He was able to deliver them, but when he hung on the cross, there was no one to deliver him from that, right? Anyway, verse 39 says, And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly crieth out, and it teareth him, that he foameth again, and bruising him hardly, which means harshly, departeth from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, and what? Again. And they could not. One thing all three gospel accounts make sure we know is that the disciples could not. They could not do anything about this situation. They could not deliver the boy. And Jesus answering said, oh, can't you just hear him sighing deeply again in his spirit, saying, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring your son hither. And as he was yet a coming, 
that's a southern expression, as he was yet a coming, <laughs> the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered, everyone at all the things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples. And see, we've already learned that this was done privately in a house. He said to his disciples, and I love this, let these sayings sink down into your ears. I underlined that in my Bible. He really wants his men to get it. Do you not feel like saying that sometimes to people you're teaching, your children or a Sunday school class or Bible study women? Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Get this. Hear this. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, and they perceived it not. For why? And they feared the, really, the real reason they didn't hear it and understand is because they feared the truth. They feared to ask him of that saying. All right, with the next chronological step in our Lord's earthly life, we find that the scene shifts rather quickly and dramatically from the mountain of glory, where he was last week on the Mount of Transfiguration, to the Valley of Grief. Remember how we talked about most of life is spent in the valley? Well, reality struck really quickly because when the Lord and his three men came down, there they were in the Valley of Grief. We're taken in just a, short, a few short verses from the blinding, unveiled majesty of the Son of God in the presence of who? Moses and Elijah with God the Father even speaking from heaven to suddenly the despairing reality of life in a sin-cursed world at its most horrifying. I describe this in your books as a hellish situation, which it is because Satan is in control of this situation. There in the valley below, the Lord met a man whose only child was in the tortuous throes of a demonic, of demonic possession. And he found his other nine disciples, faith faithlessly impotent in their attempts to help this boy. He also, the Lord, met a, a group of taunting scribes who were using the failure of his disciples to their own advantage, probably to discredit the Lord. And Jesus also met a multitude of people who stood by watching everything, equally unable to offer any remedy to this particular tragic situation. And what a warning this serves to you and I, does it not? Remember we talked about how wonderful it is to have our mountaintop experiences and to be spiritually re revived in the Lord. But what happens so often right after we have a, a spiritual victory or mountaintop experience? Yes, that is when Satan knows that we are most vulnerable and um, he will attack. And so if this is what happened with the Lord, after his wonderful experience up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, we can hardly expect less for ourselves. More than ever, after a spiritual high or some kind of spiritual victory, we need to be prepared for warfare down here in the valley, in the real world. Now, the great multitude that surrounded the nine disciples, the nine who had not been with the Lord up there on the mountain, included, we are told only by Mark, a group of scribes. Scribes were Jewish lawyers. They were supposedly the experts on the law. Wouldn't they have loved to have known that 
Moses had just been up on the top of that mountain. That might have been a good way to get rid of them. If the disciples had been allowed to talk about what they had seen up there, they could have said to those scribes, those taunting, mocking scribes, scribes, we just saw Moses, and maybe they would have hightailed it up the mountain to go see him. But they weren't allowed to talk about their, what they had seen up there. But anyway, these scribes were there questioning the disciples. More than likely, as I said, they were scorning them, taunting them over their failure to do anything at all to deliver the boy from his torment. They were distracting the disciples. I think that they were sapping them of their faith and their power. You know, when you hang around that kind of people who are scorners and mockers and disbelievers, it pretty soon wears on you, doesn't it? And it causes you to start doubting and um, saps, your, saps your faith and your, and your energy and your power. Well, while the disciples were standing there, trying to defend themselves, probably with their heads hanging in shame and, you know, wondering well, what, had, what had happened, why had they failed, because they had had power to cast out demons before. We'll talk about that later. But they're sitting there getting more and more defeated. The crowd, the multitude of people, is taking all of this in. They're watching all of this. This is a poor testimony, isn't it, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And while all this is going on, the poor boy is all but being killed by this unclean spirit within him. The father who had brought the son to to the Lord's disciples for delivering, being exercised of the demon, presumably with great hope in his heart, because I am sure the man had heard much about Jesus and what he could do, and even what his disciples could do, because when they were sent out in pairs, they went throughout all kinds of areas. We don't know exactly where they are at this point in time. Remember we discussed that last week? So I don't know if they're up near Mount Hermon or if they're down near Mount Tabor or wherever they are, but these people had heard about Jesus. And so this man came bringing his child, his only son, to the Lord with great expectation. He had a, a, a mustard seed of faith at least to bring his boy to the Lord, right, to begin with. And now his hope had been crushed because of the fact that his his disciples were utterly powerless to do anything to release the boy from his bondage. I'm sure they tried over and over again to exercise the demon and were totally, they totally failed. Well, the scripture tells us that the man's son, as we talked about, was both deaf and dumb. He's also referred to as a lunatic in Matthew 17:15 which comes from a Greek word that literally means moonstruck. This was an expression that was used because the of the ancient belief that mental illnesses had were somehow influenced by the cycle of the moon. It's where they get the idea of werewolves. I don't know if people watched people who had epileptic fits, you know, or seizures and and noticed that perhaps they had more of them when there was a full moon. And so uh, someone like this boy was referred to as a lunatic, which, as I said, means moonstruck. Uh, this boy's particular condition was so severe that he often was suicidal because he would oftentimes throw himself, well, actually the demon within him was trying to destroy him, would throw him into the uh, open campfires, which were common back in that day. People would build campfires out in the open so they could keep themselves warm. And likewise, he would cast himself into the many open bodies of water, such as wells or pool pools that were available and abundant back then. The poor boy was uh, probably covered with body scars 
from you know falling down and being bruised. He was probably also covered with a lot of uh, burn marks from having cast himself into the fire. And can't you imagine his poor parents? Later on, we find out that the, that he had been like this since he was a small boy, a child. You know, just a little a little guy. Now he's still a child, but he's I don't know. I could guess maybe ten, twelve. I'm not sure exactly how old he was, but he's still called a child. And the parents would have to be with this boy at all times, 24-7, wouldn't they? If they left him for one minute, he could, he could destroy himself. What a burden on the father and the mother. And the boy couldn't talk. He couldn't hear. It's a terrible, terrible situation for these poor parents. And the boy's father already knew what Jesus himself confirmed. He knew that his son's problem was not merely physical it was not merely mental it was what demonic the boy's father understood this <clears throat> he said to jesus in mark nine seventeen. he said master i have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit it's the spirit the demon the evil spirit that's making him not be able to speak he knew that it was an unclean spirit which was causing the boy's inability to not only be able to speak but to hear and to act so destructively toward himself. Doesn't Satan try to take a lot of our young people and cause them to harm themselves? Yes, he does, and he is successful far too often. The gospel writer Luke, remember now, Luke was a physician. Uh, He was a, a man who would have been very familiar with epilepsy and other similar physical illnesses, and yet in his gospel account, he insists that this boy's condition is one of demonic possession. I think we probably have a lot of this going on, and yet people, doctors label it today as something else, They and they give them downers and uppers and tranquilizers, when a lot of conditions are probably demonic possession. He wrote in Luke 9.39 that when the spirit took hold of the boy, he would suddenly scream. That tells us something. It tells us that the, <clears throat> the spirit had, had a power over the boy's speech. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't say words and he couldn't hear, but yet he still had a voice box, you know, because he could scream. It says the boy would scream out, cry out, and then the demon would tear at him. I just can't imagine what that would be like but the demon inside of him is tearing at the boy and causing him to actually foam at the mouth you know fall down and writhe around and and foam at the mouth i suppose if this boy grew up with this condition if he made it if he survived that he would wind up like the the gadarene demoniac you know out they finally could do nothing he would get too strong and they would have to just send him out to live in the tombs And he would be like that fellow who was cutting himself, also trying to destroy himself, running around naked. Just terrible. So here was a case of a boy dominated by a devil, which serves as a picture in type for us of the devil's control of any life. You know, it tells us in Scripture that Satan is the god of this world. All men are born under the dominion of Satan, are they not? The only escape is to go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as one's Lord and Savior. That's the only way out. Otherwise, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Uh, So Satan's number one goal in, in his existence is to keep people from Jesus. And he's very good at doing this. 
this is his primary test. He's been at, about this business for a long, long time, ever since the beginning. Notice when, that when Jesus did ask the Father, and he didn't ask this because he didn't know. Jesus knows everything. But when he asked the Father how long his son had been in this condition, we are told in Mark 9, 21, that he had been in that condition since he was a child. Did you know that mankind has been under the influence of Satan's control since humanity was in its infancy? Right? Since the Garden of Eden. Without Jesus having come down from a high mountain, from above, you know, <laughs> speaking of heaven, to intervene on our behalf and to deliver us from our bondage to sin and to Satan, we would continue on in our hopeless and helpless condition because no one else, just like in this scene, no one else would ever be able to save us. No one else would ever have the cure. No one be, would be able to deliver us from our bondage to sin and Satan. Did you know that? Just like the multitude was impotent, the religious crowd was impotent, even the disciples who were believers were impotent without the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a picture here, a miniature picture of, of our own redemption, don't we, in this scene. Now, you know that the devil wants to get hold of our children. Do you all know that? If you know that, raise your hand. Do you know that the devil, he knows his time is short. Look at Revelation 12, 12. You'll see that when the, when the devil knows his time is growing shorter, he rages even more furiously. And that is exactly what we are seeing in our day and age. And boy, is it going to get worse during the tribulation after the church is out of here. But he is after our children, and the younger, the better. He wants to destroy their lives as he attempts to destroy the young boy's life in this story. He's doing, Satan is doing everything that he possibly can to get the minds of our children. And he's using every means at his disposal. And the more technology advances, the more he has at his disposal. And he's using it. He is very wise in using the media and all kinds of computers, the Internet, everything. Everything he has at his disposal, he's using. I just, I mean, from the cartoons, it used to be safe to let your children watch Saturday morning cartoons because, you know, it would be Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and the Roadrunner and that sort of thing. But now cartoons are so wicked and evil and satanic. And, uh, ooh, I, I bought this weekend and went to see our our grandchildren up in Virginia Beach, and I bought my grandson a DVD that was a G, G, you know, rated G. Now, I thought G meant that there was no violence, that there was no cussing. Isn't there not supposed to be any bad words in a G? Isn't that general audience? <laughs> it was a cartoon. It was a little mice, and, and it, was, it, had a good, it, it had a good moral story to it. But I couldn't believe it in the middle of it, the king of the rats said the word D-A-M-N. Slipped it in there. I th we were all sitting there, my son-in-law and my daughter and my, and my grandchildren and my other daughter. We, we couldn't believe we had just heard that. So we had to replay. Did we really hear that? Yep, there it was. He said that, and it's in a G-rated movie. Boy, they, you know, if they can slip it in. I feel like writing a letter and saying... Is, am I wrong? Or My husband said, I'm just naive. He said, you're just naive if you don't think they're going to get away with what they can get away with. But yeah. yeah, it's a problem. It's like the frog in the boiling pot of water. We all get desensitized to it. But it, it, they're toys. You can't walk through the toy section of the stores safely anymore. Every, everything is so wicked. 
just wicked at games. Sins that used to only be adult sins are now sins of the children. Did you see last night on the news about the, the young teenagers giving the little two-year-old and four-year-old pot to smoke marijuana? Doesn't it just make you sick? Oh, it just tears me, my heart out. It just makes me sick. We are in the latter days. I have no doubt about it. We are in a wicked, wicked world. What we need is more parents like the Syrophoenician woman who, even though the woman wasn't saved, she did get saved. She actually had great faith at the end, didn't she? But she had so much care and concern for her daughter that she brought the daughter to who? To Jesus. We need more mothers like her. We need more fathers like this man. Even though he was unsaved at the beginning, I believe he gets saved when he sees his son delivered. Um, and he was willing. He had a heart, a burden for his son. He was willing to bring him to, to Jesus. Because the devil knows how advantageous it is to start early to do our children harm, don't you think that you and I, as their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts or as their Sunday school teachers or whatever contact you have with young children, that we ought to be at least as equally wise to start as early as we can to do them good. I'm talking about even in the womb. I don't think there's any harm in sitting down with a Bible and reading the Bible if you're pregnant. Out loud. I'm, yeah, out loud. Out loud. So that little one hears. Um, my father, I remember, said that I was brainwashing my children. And I said, you got that right. They, are, they need their brains washed. <laughs> And what better to wash him with than the word of God? You know, if, if we don't brainwash him, who's going to brainwash him? Oh, the world will brainwash him in a heartbeat. Yes. Children are never, I, have, I am a firm believer that children are never too young to hear the scriptures read to them or to be told about Jesus. It's exceedingly important to win young boys and girls to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they will not fall into the fatal snares of Satan. <clears throat> if they can be influenced by the devil, they can certainly be influenced and led by God the Holy Spirit. If the devil can claim their minds for sin and shame and destruction, I believe that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially as the female, the mothers, and the aunts and the grandmothers, that we can claim their minds for him, for the Lord Jesus now that, I will be the first one to admit, is not an easy task. It is a full-time job. It never ends. I was worn out after this weekend with my little grandchildren. I mean, one is two and the other one's nine months. So it is a full-time job. But you have to watch them 24-7 and every opportunity you get. My grandson was under the influence of a five-year-old this past week. My daughter babysat her friend's five-year-old, and he learned this little expression from the five-year-old, and he learned this word, mine. David, we don't do that. I mean, it's full-time. Now, when his sister has one of his toys, mine. <laughs> you know, they're born as little sinners, aren't they? And we need, we just, it's, it's a very tiring, remember how we talked last week about how following the Lord Jesus is exhausting work? His disciples were always exhausted. Well, guess what? I don't know of another job that's more exhausting than being a mother. It is, it is the highest calling there is, other than grandmothering. No. 
No, I'm being facetious. Mothering is the most important, but it is not easy work. And you cannot, like the disciples, you can't fall asleep. Boy, you sure don't get a lot of sleep, do you, with young ones. I read about a man who began to tell each of, this is a true story, a man who began to tell each of his children about Jesus on the day they brought them home. He and the wife brought them home from the hospital after they were born. He said he'd take the child into the bedroom, and he said, I want to tell you a story, baby. Once upon a time, there was a man named Adam, and there was a woman, his wife named Eve, and they lived in a beautiful garden called the Garden of Eden. God put them there. He gave them a beautiful, wonderful place to live, but sin came into that garden. And dear baby, because of that sin in the garden, sin has come into the whole world. And even you, my precious little one, are born with a sinful nature. But God loves you, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you, to save you from your sins. And if you will repent of your sins and believe on Jesus as your Savior, you will be saved and forgiven, and you will go to heaven when you die. Now, people, when they heard about what this man did, they said, well, that is absolutely ridiculous. That is silly. And the man said, you're right, I know that those babies didn't understand a single thing that I was saying. But I didn't want any of my children to ever know a time in their lives when their daddy did not tell them about Jesus Christ and how to be saved. Isn't that a precious example? That is so precious. So remember John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that was a unique case, but from the time of his mother's womb, you know, even from the womb, I was telling my pregnant daughter, even from the womb, we need to start telling this little one about Jesus. You know what the the, the what Satan is referred to in the Bible as he's referred to as a roaring lion, stalking about, seeking whom he may devour, and he is after our little ones, our babies, our children. Even if our babies are thirty or forty or fifty years old, they're still our babies, aren't they? And I got to thinking, you know, the one creature that is not that intimidated by the bad old lion is the lioness. And you come after that lioness's little babies and she'll stand up to that lion in a heartbeat, right? Women, you're the lionesses and those are your little cubs, your little babies. I know I, I I would do whatever it takes. I would kill for my babies, wouldn't you? You know, if if somebody was going to attack them, kidnap them, kill them. That's what we need to do. We need to be so concerned about our young ones that whatever it takes, we will never quit praying for them, interceding for them 24-7, talking to them about the Lord. I don't care if you have an unsaved 50-year-old child. Don't ever give up. Every time you see that child, even if he rejects you, doesn't want to hear it, you say, you know what? Jesus loves you and he died for you. I don't care what you think of me. It's the truth, son. It's the truth, daughter. And I want you to be in heaven when you die. I want to see you for all of eternity. Crawl on your hands, your knees. I don't, that's what I would do. That's the most important thing, right? Do you agree with me? Don't ever give up. All things are possible to him that believes. Well, not only did Jesus encounter a powerless world, which is to be expected when he came down from the mountaintop, but the sad thing is that he also encountered a powerless world church. Now, I know the church hadn't been, wasn't in existence yet, but I say powerless church, saying that his disciples represented the church, figuratively speaking here. 
Now, we know from our study so far that Christ had already given all 12 of his apostles the power to cast out demons. We know this because when he sent them out on that first mission venture in pairs, gave them the ordination sermon, I think it was back in Matthew 10, he gave them the power to cast out demons. And we're actually told in Mark 6:13 that they did cast out many devils. Yet this time... You know, when they went out in pairs, there would only be two of them. If they came across a demoniac, they would cast out the demon, just two. Here we have how many guys together? Nine. And yet, they're not able to cast out one demon from one boy. They failed miserably, and their embarrassment was heightened by the questioning insults and the taunting of the scribes who were enjoying, can't you imagine, every minute of their advantage over their enemy's followers. And that's what the enemy, you know, loves to do. When they see that, uh, you know, the Lord was out of the picture, they went, they went to the disciples. They'll be after us all the time to, get, to ruin our testimony because it sheds disfavor on our Lord. And the onlooking crowd of, of people, of course, was uh, growing more and more skeptical of the truth that the disciples had probably been preaching to them, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, I don't know if they were allowed to say that, but they were saying he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Now they're thinking, mm, I'm not so sure that's true because we, can't, we don't see you guys having any power in your lives. If you think about this, this isn't too dissimilar from the experience that Moses encountered. When he came down from a mountain, remember when he came down after getting the law from Mount Sinai? He had been in the presence of God, and he came down to a terrible disaster, didn't he? The same situation that Jesus finds here, great disorder. So the Lord's return was at the same time, uh, we could say, very welcome by his own. Don't you know? And, of course, he was on time. As everything he does, he's right on schedule. If he had been a little bit later coming down from the mountaintop, you know what, have, what would have happened? Everybody would have dissipated. Everybody would be gone, and that poor boy would probably die an early death. The father the mother would never have faith. Um, the crowd would have been very disappointed in Jesus, and just it would have been a completely different situation. But he came right at the the precise moment that he needed to, and his disciples, I'm sure, were very glad to see him. Shamed, but yet at the same time glad to see him. So at the same time, they were happy, but it was very distressing, I'm sure, for his enemies. I don't imagine the scribes were too happy to see him. But you know this is exactly how it's going to be at the time of the Lord's second coming. There's going to be one crowd who's delighted, just tickled to death. They'll be counting off the days. You know, we're getting near to the end of the seven years of tribulation. He's going to be coming. And they'll be so excited when he comes. And there's going to be a whole other crowd that will be very upset when he comes. And they'll know who he is. And they'll still shake their fists in his face. Amazing, isn't it? The time of his second coming. Well, it tells us that in Mark 9, 15... That all the people, when they beheld him, I want you to look at this verse. I don't know where you are. You could be anywhere. (laughs) Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But look right now at at Mark 9, 15, where it says that all the people, when they beheld him, and they looked at him, they were greatly amazed. That's really strong in the Greek. They were like, you know, just, wow, greatly amazed. Jaws hanging open. It's understandable 
for us to understand why they'd be, some of them at least, would be happy to see him and glad to see him. But why were they greatly amazed when they looked on him? Well, personally, I think it's because there still remained something very unusual about his countenance. He had just had his divine glory unveiled, right? And I think that there, just like Moses' face still shone when he came down from being in the presence of God there on Mount Sinai, I think that there was yet a glow about the Lord's face that greatly amazed these people. Even when he asked the scribes a question, I'm, I think this is over in Matthew seventeen sixteen. he asked them, he says, what question ye with them? What are you saying to my disciples? You'll notice that the scribes don't say anything. I think they're just standing there like this, looking at him, yeah? and they don't have any words to say because they don't answer him. The only one who speaks up is the, the boy's father. And the boy's father comes forward and he says, uh, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, the the spirit takes him, he teareth him, he foameth, he gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. That means he's withering away. Mark? Okay. Is that Mark 9, 17 and 18? And he says, And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. So it's the boy's father that answers. Well, what had gone wrong with the Lord's men? They still had his promise. He hadn't taken away his promise and his power is that they would be able to cast out demons. He hadn't taken that from him. And, and you can't say that, well, this time he wasn't with them, because when he sent them out in pairs on that mission venture, he wasn't with them either. I think that in these men, what we have is a picture of, of weak Christians, powerless churches, weak churches. The saddest words of all are, you know, when the Father says, um, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. What an awful tragedy it is when many of the world's desperate people, and the world is full of desperate people. If you don't believe me by looking around in Sanford or down in the Sand Hills area, go to Virginia Beach like I did this weekend and just look around. Desperate people everywhere. You can just see it on their faces. You know, they're big into doing all these things to their bodies, the tattooing and the, and the ear piercing and the tongue piercing and everything that they can think of to do to their bodies. But you know what they're starting to do now? They're starting to do it to their animals. I saw a hot pink poodle this week. I hope you don't do that to your poor animals. <laughs> And now they're starting to pierce the animal's ears. And I I thought that was so sad. Hot pink, Barbie doll pink poodle. Big poodle, you know, not one of the miniature poodles, big poodle. Well, anyway, back to my subject. What an awful tragedy it is when the world's desperates come into many, many of our churches today for the solution to their problems. They go in, those that do go in, many do not go in, but those that do go in, and they come out saying the same thing and they could not. I thought maybe they'd have a, a solution to my problems. They didn't have it. I didn't hear anything in there that was, that was going to help me at all. I didn't see anything different in there. That's sad, isn't it? They go into the churches and don't see anything different from what they can see out in the world. Really, really sad. We're living in a day such as this, a day of a desperate world and a powerless church. Yes. 
Well, at just the right moment, the Lord appeared on the scene to take control of the situation. That's how it'll be at the end times, at just the right moment. He uh, took control of the situation in the valley of confusion and despair. He handled the situation, first of all, by taking the father's diminished faith and cultivating it and delivering his son from the demon. And secondly, he corrected the failure of his men when they were alone in private, which is important so that they would not be further embarrassed. You know, when you discipline your children, where are you to do it? Out in the middle of the grocery store with everybody looking around? No. If you need to talk to them, do so quietly. Look them in the eyes. Do it quietly. But when you do punish them, do it privately. That's important. That's an example the Lord set for us. Before directly addressing the father who had just described the situation about his son to Jesus, the Lord's first response before he addressed the father was one of this deep inner groaning. I think he groaned again within his spirit. This is a deep inner sorrow. When he took in the whole situation and he said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. You know, in effect, he said, how long am I going to be long-suffering with you? How long shall I be with you and suffer you that you haven't learned yet? You ever get that, feel that way, you know? When you're you're trying to deal with somebody, you just say, how long is it going to take? How patient do I have to be with you? Now, you can... um, Study this on your own to figure out who he was talking to here. I read and read and read, and commentators have different ideas on, was he talking to his men, his disciples? Was he talking to the scribes, the religious crowd? If anybody should have known better, it should have been them. They studied the law all the time. They should have known how to deal with the enemy, Satan. Was he talking to the whole multitude? Was he talking to everybody in general? I don't know. You decide. <laughs> I, in, your, in your books, I said, I think I said in the books that I think maybe he was just talking to all of them, just talking to himself, you know, thinking of all of them. But because Jesus would not be diverted from his mission nor fall into the temptation to despair, I would probably be in, you know, like Moses. Oh, just throw up your hands and for, you know, throw the tablets down and just... <laughs> Forget this crowd. I don't need this in my life. But the Lord wasn't tempted to despair. He turned to the Father, and what did he say? He said, bring him unto me. Exactly. And this is exactly what he says to you and I. Bring him, bring your, your, those of, in your family or your friends who don't know him are in a hellish situation of some kind under the influence of Satan. Bring them to him. He is the only remedy for every sinner. So he says, bring them unto me. He alone has the answer. If some of you today perhaps had a disappointing experience in a particular church, at some point in your lives, and who doesn't at some point if you've been a Christian for very long, please don't use that. Or if you've had an experience with a a Christian who disappointed you, don't ever use that as an excuse to find fault with Jesus. You know, um, don't use it as an excuse to mock or ridicule him. Instead, take the advice of this father here. He would give you this advice. He'd say, even though you've been disappointed by other people, you know, even people who call themselves Christians, pick yourself up 
from your despair and go directly to who? To Jesus. Because he and he alone will never disappoint you. He will never uh, cause you to, to be dissatisfied. The rest of us will. Why? Because the rest of us are human. And we all fail. We all make many mistakes. But only Jesus will never let you down. He will be the only one who will never leave you nor forsake you in your dilemma, whatever it is. Forever to the credit of this boy demoniac's father is that he exhibited enough wisdom to look beyond men and go directly to the master. He fell on his knees before the master. He didn't throw up his hands and say, well, if this is Christianity, if these men represent Christianity, forget it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. He went straight to the source of power. He went to Jesus. I learned a long time ago that if I tried to live the Christian life based on what others who claim to be Christians did, or if I tried to live the Christian life by looking at myself and what I do and how weak I am in the flesh, I would have given up in despair and bitterness a long, long time ago. Have you found that to be true? If you look within, you'll be, you'll be um, depressed. <laughs> if you look outward, you'll be in despair. It's only when we look, of course, downward, you'll always be in despair. Only when we look up are we delivered and delighted. So learn to never put your eyes on people solely, even godly people, because they can disappoint you. And we've seen that in our world, haven't we, many times. And people will just, some of the, the young sheep and some that aren't even sheep yet will just give up and say, oh, I don't have anything to do with Christianity because they have the focus on men instead of on the Lord. So the Lord began to cultivate the father's faith, and he did it by redirecting his attention to the right object of faith. He said, bring your boy to me. And when the, when the boy brought the father, the father brought the boy to, to the Lord, the spirit within the boy knew who Jesus was, right? And he got really upset because he knew his time was short. And he tore at the boy, caused him to fall on the ground and foam at the mouth. Since the Lord's disciples had failed, the father was now, we find, the father was not even sure that Jesus could do anything. And that's why in verse 22, I have no idea which gospel, Mark. <laughs> in Mark 9, 22, he said to Jesus, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's interesting if we compare this event with what happened here to the event that happened in Matthew 8, 2, which was right after the Lord had come down from another mountain. He had just given the sermon on the mount. When he came down from that mountaintop experience, he was met immediately by a leper. And the leper approached him and said, Lord, if you will, if it's your will, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. You see, the leper in that first situation was confident of the Lord's power. But he put the conditional if on his will. He said, if you will, if, if it's your will, I know you have the power to make me clean. Here, on the other hand, with this boy demoniac's father, he recognized the Lord's compassionate nature. He knew that he, he had the will, but he put the conditional if on his power. And why do you think that was? Well, he saw the disciples had the will to heal his son, to deliver his son, but they didn't have the power. So he just projected that onto Jesus. And he said, uh, you know, if, 
I, I know you want to, but I'm not sure you have, have the power. So this is another thing is um, an example to you and I, that if we, if we fail, we not only shame ourselves, but we bring dishonor onto our Lord, don't we? Not only did their failure embarrass them, but it robbed the, the Lord of any honor and glory that could have come from this situation. Well, it did because he, he came to rescue it. So we don't want to give an occasion for the enemy to criticize. Remember that. You're not an island unto yourself. What you do affects a whole lot of people. They're watching. You have that whole circle of influence. Anyhow, so it was necessary for the Lord to strengthen the faith of the Father, and that's why he responded to the man, If thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. You see, whereas the Father had put the condition upon the Lord's power, Jesus turned the condition right back on him and put it on his faith, if you can believe. And then he graciously and compassionately said something to encourage that faith. He said to him, and I underline this in my Bible, all things are possible to him that believes. And, of course, that is restricted to that which is in the Lord's will, which is in God's will. But that doesn't hinder the promise. It merely purifies it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all things are possible to him that believeth? All things are possible to him. Well, it's the Lord's promise, so I guess we should believe it. All things are possible. There's nothing that's impossible to God. He's the one who who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who turned water into wine. He's the one who raised the dead. Lazarus, after four days, came out of a tomb. There is nothing that is impossible with him. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh, the things we're going to see in the future will really verify that truth. There is nothing that is impossible to him. He can turn this whole world situation totally around, and he will one day. Well, notice that the father's profession of faith was earnest, and it was honest because he said, and it's good to be honest before the Lord because he knows our hearts anyway. This man had great compassion for his son. He really cared for his boy. And he cries out with tears, it says. And he said, Lord, I believe. And then he threw in what? Help thou mine unbelief. That's a prayer. Do you find you pray that? That's, that's an open, honest prayer. Lord, I believe. Strengthen my belief. Strengthen my faith. You know? And notice he went also from calling the Lord. The first time he called him master, which is the daskali, um, which just means teacher or rabbi. Now what does he call him? Lord, he's advancing. He says, in effect, Lord, I will not place any condition on your power. Okay. I'm going to believe not only in your mercy and your compassion, but I'm going to believe in your power. But uh, I need a little, you know, prayer for grace to do that. <laughs> uh, help me. Help me. And the, the Lord honors that kind of prayer because we see that then the man, the father, witnessed the total deliverance of his son. Not only was his son delivered from the demon. Of course, the demon had a little fit before he left, and the boy looked like he was laying there dead. Um, but he was delivered. And don't you know when the boy got up after Jesus reached down and lifted him up? You know what Satan does? He casts down. What does Jesus do? He lifts us up. You know? That's exactly what we see here. But uh, don't you know then that boy could hear and speak? He was delivered. And not only was he delivered, he was delivered permanently. When the, when the Lord Jesus Christ delivers, he delivers permanently. 
Jesus said, and enter no more into him. When he spoke to the, the demon, you know, he rebuked the demon with just a word. Yes, you get out and you stay out. And that demon had no choice in the matter. He had to leave. He was mad about it, threw the boy down and just about killed him. <clears throat> but he had to obey. You notice that Jesus <clears throat> didn't negotiate with the demon. You know how we're to deal with evil? You don't negotiate with it. You don't try to bargain with it. You don't try to have summit meetings and write little peace treaties. You do what Jesus did. He rebuked it. Today's popular philosophy is to go soft on evil and to even give different names for evil. But that was not what the Lord did. He rebuked it. He called it what it was, and he rebuked it. You know, when you go soft on it, like David said, deal gently with Absalom. You only increase the problem. You don't solve the problem. When, when the disciples were alone with Jesus, as we talked about, privately in a home, they anxiously, and this is good, they wanted to know why they failed. When we fail, it's good to ask, you know, why do we fail? I want to learn from my mistake. So they asked why they had not been able to deliver the boy. And he said immediately, because of your unbelief. Now, I looked that up in Vincent Ward studies, and in the Greek, the original Greek, it literally means because of your little faith, your lack of faith. What they lacked, they didn't lack saving faith, except for Judas. The others all knew who he was by now. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. They didn't lack saving faith. And they, they didn't last, uh, lack trusting faith because they, they wouldn't have even tried to deliver the boy from the demon if they didn't have trusting faith. What they lacked here was continuing faith or sufficient faith to continue to put into operation the power that they already had, that Jesus had already given them. I think about Peter. He had, he had faith when he stepped out of the boat, started walking on the, on the top of the stormy water and wait, wind at the waves, right? But what he didn't have was continuing faith, sufficient faith to get him all the way to his destination. That's why Jesus said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith is the kind of faith that tends to believe in God only when the checkbook is in good shape. You know, little faith is what most believers experience when circumstances get a little dark, a little uncertain, a little bleak. These men did not realize that their faith must continually be cultivated through such spiritual disciplines as what? Prayer and fasting. And fasting, uh, one commentator said, it's not just giving up food. It's, it's being disciplined. Think of fasting as being disciplined. There's other things sometimes besides food that we have to give up to live a, a, a growing Christian life. A lot of things I have given up in my life. It's being disciplined. And um, having your daily quiet time with the Lord, your daily time of devotion with him, and doing what you're doing here, studying God's word. If we don't continually exercise our faith, we will find ourselves giving way to the enemy who will attack us. He will. It's a known. He will attack us with such fiery darts as shameful doubts about God's love. Does he really love me? If he really loved me, why wouldn't he have taken me up on the mountaintop? Why did he leave me down here? Why did he only take Peter, James, and John? He will attack us with, with doubts about his power, doubts of discouragement, doubts of impatience. That's what happened to Moses' crowd, right? They just got tired. They just got impatient waiting for him to come back. Darts that encourage us to quit. I have to fight those all the time. I fought them yesterday morning. I was just, oh, 
I don't want to go to Bible study today. I'm so unprepared. I'm so unready. I want to just quit. (laughs) We will find virtues such as courage and uh, strength and long-suffering and hope. All these things, we will find them withering away if we are not continually cultivating our faith. Again, it's like mothering. It's a full-time job. A faith is the root on which everything depends. Faith is the key to success. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith is the key to having victory over the enemy in Christian warfare. This is why the same Israelites who had triumphantly crossed on dry ground when God divided the Red Sea were the same ones who a little while later didn't have enough faith to go into the promised land. Oh, we can't. It's occupied by giants. We can't do it. Had God changed? No, God's power hadn't changed. What had changed? They had changed. They didn't have sustaining faith. And that's why it tells us in Hebrews uh, that they could not enter in because of unbelief, because of little faith. The nine disciples were not able to cast out the demon as they had been able to do on previous occasions for a number of reasons. What had happened to their faith? I don't know for sure, but I can speculate about some things. Perhaps they were too confident about their past successes. You know, they'd been successful before. Maybe they were just overconfident. But success in the past does not guarantee success in the future, does it? And, um, well, I tell you about when you know Jericho and AI is an example of that. Perhaps they were careless in the way they went about trying to heal the boy. Maybe they um, relied more on their method than they did on the necessity to pray. You remember when the Lord went up before he had the transfiguration experience? What did he go up there to do? Pray. I think he was up there praying for this boy demoniac. I think he was up there praying for the boy's father because he knew everything that was going to happen. I think he was up there praying for his... Um, his nine disciples who were left behind. One commentator said the only difference between their failure in the valley and the failure of Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop was that the nine apostles slept in the valley with their eyes open. (laughs) The other three guys were up there sleeping with their eyes closed. These were sleeping with their eyes open. Uh, Perhaps they had a sense that Jesus was far away. You know, he's gone from us. He's far away. And also they had a lack of leadership. Jesus had taken their three leaders. Peter, James, and John. Also, of course, we have to throw in the scribes. The scribes were sapping their faith, and, and um, that was causing them to doubt. But one thing I, I know is that they weren't strong in prayer because the Lord said this kind. Now, are there degrees of demons? Yes, obviously, because he said this kind. This was a strong demon. This kind cometh out by prayer and fasting, and they weren't doing that. They were out of fellowship, apparently, with God due to also some jealousies. And we know this because if you'll look at, if, uh, if you're in the Mark account, just look at Mark 9, 33 and 34. Right on the heels of this, we find the disciples are having some problems with jealousy. Very likely, these nine who were left behind and were not invited to accompany the Lord Jesus when he went up to the mountain. Now, they don't know what went on up there. If they did know, it would only increase the situation. But they know that Jesus has already picked Peter, James, and John to go into Jairus' home where he raised his daughter from the dead, and now they're the, the only ones selected to go up on the mountaintop. So they're jealous. 
They're getting jealous of the fact that Peter and James and John seem to be preferred. Maybe during the Lord's absence, these nine justified, therefore, a time of relaxation because they had missed out on the mountaintop experience or adventure. Whatever the cause might have been, according to the Lord, we do know that they neglected prayer and discipline, and consequently their faith was weakened. And because of this, when time for the battle came, they were unprepared spiritually, just like Samson, who went out to fight but didn't even realize that the power was gone. And the warfare against Satan for you and I must never, ever, ever be taken lightly. Without a, a lifestyle of, of uh, serious prayer and daily discipline in God's word and quiet time with him, we too, guaranteed, no matter how long you've been, past successes don't guarantee future successes, we will meet with spiritual defeat and we will give the enemy an opportunity to mock the Lord. And we will cause, cause those who are watching us to lose hope and to lose faith. So we have to be in the word of God, don't we? We have to spend time in prayer. And he said that uh, if we only have faith as a grain of mustard seed, we can move mountains. You know, and when he uses the expression move mountains, it's not that we can literally move a mountain. You know, Say, I want this mountain. Where's a close-by mountain? Mount Pilot. You know, if I have enough faith, I can move Mount Pilot to my backyard. That's not what he's saying. It was a common Jewish expression to say you can overcome obstacles in your life. Just a grain of mustard seed. The grain of mustard seed faith speaks about a faith that is not, not only starts out little, but it continues to grow. Remember the parable of the mustard seed? A little mustard seed in Israel grows into a 15-foot tall mustard plant. It's an amazing thing. We don't have that here, but they do over there. It speaks of not only uh, little faith that grows, but living faith, growing faith, cultivated faith. How do you cultivate your faith? Again, prayer. You need to spend time in your prayer closet. You need to spend time in God's word. I know that when I am weak, I gain my strength from being in God's word. Oh, it is my nourishment. I need it every day. That's, that's how we grow, and that's how we overcome the mountains, the obstacles in our life. Well, the last part, he predicts again his upcoming death. This time he even throws in the fact that he would be betrayed. He doesn't say by who, but he predicted that he would be betrayed and that he would die, and on the third day he would rise again. He says, let these words sink down into your ears, but they still don't get it. When he, it's like kind of like Martha, when he told Martha that Lazarus would rise you know she said oh yeah yeah i know you know on the resurrection day that's what they're thinking that he's saying three days you know it must be some kind of spiritual meaning that maybe in three thousand years at the time of the great resurrection he will rise they didn't get it that was three literal days and they never got past the part that he kept saying he was going to die why because they wanted the kingdom right then and there and there are no, none so deaf to hear as those who don't want to hear they didn't want to hear that he was going to die. They wanted the kingdom. They wanted to sit right next to him when he came into the kingdom. So they didn't hear and they didn't understand. And we are through. And thank you so much for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that this book, this Bible, warns us of so many things. Like being especially prepared for spiritual warfare with the enemy if, after we have experienced some kind of a a spiritual victory, and, and also about being careful to maintain a disciplined spiritual life of prayer 
and Bible study so that our little faith will persistently grow and develop into the kind of faith that can overcome all obstacles, no matter how big they seem to appear before us. We know that you are the overcomer, and in you, we too are overcomers. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would help us to be 24-7 determined lionesses, Um, raising our children and our grandchildren and our nephews and our nieces and those in our Sunday school classes and in our Wednesday night classes. Lord, give us such a burden for our next generation, for our young cubs, Lord. Help us to teach them at early ages about Jesus, that he and he alone has the heavenly solution to the sin problem. Thank you, Father. I ask that you would go with every woman, be with her this week, and bring us all back again to study your word and learn more about Jesus next week. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.